the local priest next door ran into the hall. Please turn off the, the uh, microphone right now. Why? What's going wrong? He said, because it, is it on? <laughs> so please turn on the microphone. <laughs> be the same frequency as his Sunday morning sermon. <laughs> <laughs> so the talk of meditation is broadcast live <laughs> in his church on a Sunday morning. He wasn't very pleased with that. But anyway, I thought it was good. Good way of spreading dharma. <laughs> anyway, back to the talk. So, uh, it's okay, yeah? It would be better if they just... Uh, I don't know one way to cure X. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's better. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> 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 it's okay to tell the market is for. It's not bad. But anyway, let's go back to... Uh, yeah, the... What I was going to talk about this morning is not a breath meditation. And what I'm going to talk about is a breath meditation, a breath meditation. So when you're doing, when you're doing the breath meditation, get feedback. <laughs> <laughs> now, one of the first things that you are supposed to do, this is how the Buddha taught it, is find a secluded place. Is this secluded here? How many people in this room? <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to find seclusion. But what you can do is when you close your eyes and sit still, almost imagine a little bubble around you. I've done this many times when I've been traveling or going to a place and you're sitting down somewhere and there's lots of noise around you. Imagine a bubble around you and it is like your own little cave. When you're in a cave, now you can't hear anything outside. It's almost as if you are just putting a wall around you, an invisible wall, an imaginary wall, so sounds cannot sort of get inside of you, can't get into your space. And after a while, and just imagine that for a few minutes, and then that actually starts to work. It's as if you are training your brain not to pick up noises from outside. It's not that difficult to do. Any of you who have husbands, 
who love to watch cricket or love to watch football, or your wives like to watch movies. You can see them do that all the time. They're watching the, the, the football. Now it's time for dinner. They can't hear you. <laughs> <laughs> They're not ignoring you. The end of the movie, come down and somebody's just called you have to come. They just can't hear you because you are in a little bubble, your own little bubble. And of course it helps that if you're in that little bubble and you're enjoying what is happening, sometimes the ability to focus very much depends upon the joy and happiness that you're experiencing with that uh, movie or football match or that talk. Sometimes the people can listen to talks even and get so involved in it they can't hear anything outside. It's wonderful what you can actually do. That's very rare that you manage to do that every now and again. Uh, okay, so well, nothing to do with meditation, but here we go. It's uh, going to soon be, what's it called? Um, Halloween. The uh, Halloween day. So I always have these wonderful stories about Halloween. It's okay now. It's not late now. Okay. It's very short. Okay. Okay. Can I still tell the Halloween joke? Because <laughs> <laughs> I remember this, this gentleman, he was the, uh, the head of um, wisdom publications in the United States. And he brought his kid, little daughter, about eight, nine, ten years of age, to the temple. She could, you could see she hated going to the temple. You know, she only went there because her dad told her to. And nevertheless, uh, her dad brought her, introduced her to me. And so I realized if I talked about the Four Noble Truths or the Pentamitonation and Kalabhanasati, she would fall fast asleep or she'd run away. So instead I told her about some of these stories and just how what insight is in being able to see a different solution for some of the ordinary problems of life. And this was an extraordinary problem. The story began when this man, he went to the temple one evening for a nice talk, and on the way back, you know, he had a choice, go the long way around, back to his home, or take the shortcut. I never like shortcuts, they're always very dangerous, especially when the shortcut is through the cemetery. <laughs> <laughs> but he decided to take the shortcut. He wasn't afraid of ghosts. How many people here are afraid of ghosts? Wow, okay. Be careful. <laughs> so he took the shortcut. But you know, halfway through the cemetery grounds, it was not a problem at all. But just over halfway through, you notice in the cemeteries, the lighting always gets darker when you get to the middle of the cemetery. It's much more darker than the main streets. And anyway, he went got through the middle of the cemetery, no problem at all. Just past the middle of the cemetery, he could swear he was hearing a noise behind him. Something was following him. And he thought, it's just my imagination. You know, I shouldn't sort of be so worried. It's quite okay. But then he really started listening to what was following him. And it sounded like something was bump, bump, 
ever happens to you, please never do this. He made a really big mistake. He looked behind him. <laughs> and he couldn't believe what he saw. There was a vertical coffin. It was now at the bottom, it went wide and then went to an apex on the top. And it had all some dirt on it, like it just came out of the ground. And cobwebs. And it was bump, 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 following after him. Now, first of all, how many of you have heard the story before? <laughs> <laughs> A lot of you. Anyway, it's coming. <laughs> and so he started walking really fast. But it didn't matter how fast he walked, bump, 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 he was following him, and even worse, he was catching up on him. So he started running. When he got to the edge of the cemetery, through the cemetery gates onto the road, he thought, I'm safe now. The coffins belong in cemeteries. They can't go down to the cemetery. But the coffin never knew that law. Bump, bump, bump. <laughs> as the coffin started chasing him down the street. And he was running as fast as he could. Bump, 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 bump. And the coffin was running after him. And he got to his house was very close. He got to his garden gate. He never opened the garden gate. He jumped over it. <laughs> and when he got to his front door, turned around, and there was the coffin at the garden gate. The coffin couldn't jump over it. He thought it was safe. No. Bump! 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 And the coffin crashed through the garden gates. So, he was running between him and the coffin, except for a few minutes, or a few, no, half a minute. He reached for his house keys. You know what happens when you're not mindful? He dropped his keys. Ah! And the coffin was bumping closer to him. He picked up the first key he could find, put it in the lock. Oh, so lucky. It was the correct key. He opened the door, jumped inside, slammed the door shut. He was safe inside his house. And you can see now the glass panels you have on the front door of houses. You can see the coffin just on the other side, only a couple of inches from him. But he had the door between him. He was safe. <laughs> As the coffin started crashing into the front door, with his front door hole, <laughs> the wood started to splinter and the hinges started to give way. He realized he was in trouble. So he ran up the stairs of his house, up to the top, to the top story. <laughs> and the coffin broke through front door of his house. He was in trouble. He was on the, the top of the stairs. He saw the coffin look left, right. <laughs> he saw he was safe. And the coffin looked up. <laughs> and the coffin started bumping up the stairs. Bump, 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 bump. I tell this story because at this time, that young girl, she was paying 100% for attention. <laughs> <laughs> he said that's the first time she ever paid attention when a monk came to talk. <laughs> but anyway, what can he do now? There's only one other place that had a lock 
and that was the bathroom. So you jump inside the bathroom, lock the door, there's a pretty small chance that the coffin would not be able to break down the front door of the bathroom. And indeed, the coffin saw him go in there, and bump, bump, crash! And the coffin broke through the bathroom door. There was no more place to run. If there was the coffin in here, we couldn't go anywhere. So what could he do? His heart was pounding. He thought this was the end of him. He's going to be attacked by the supernatural coffin straight from the cemetery. Just followed him home. But instinctively, he reached out to something to defend himself. There's a bottle of medicine which was on the shelf. And he threw it at that coffin. <laughs> and it was a bottle. It, the bottom broke and all of this brown, smelly liquid went over the coffin. And the coffin stopped. <laughs> <laughs> you got it, it's coffin. <laughs> it stopped the coffin.
they haven't established mindfulness yet. Or they may be just they're depressed, they're anxious, fed up. They go watching the Buddha and not blessed. They can't do that because there's not enough mindfulness yet to be able to watch the breath. And the first thing is to establish that mindfulness. There's some simple rules of how to establish mindfulness. And of course, one of those simple rules is that you want to you know, be in a happy space, first of all. To be comfortable, physically comfortable. The Buddha always said about the middle way, avoiding extremes of physical positions which are going to tire you or cause you pain. It's one of the reasons why I emphasize the point that the Buddha taught Anapanasati. He never taught Anapanasati. <laughs> the two are close together, but they're very different. So don't be aware of pain in your body. See if you can find a nice, comfortable position for you to meditate in. And of course, you know, when we first designed this place, we tried to make it as comfortable as possible. This is about 13 years ago when we built this. And you know, times have changed. Now I mentioned this to some people in Singapore, the last retreat. Come on, it's about time that some of you decide some much better meditation cushions or meditation seats. High-tech ones. These things are just so old-fashioned. They were using these hundreds of years ago, these sufferers. So what I mean is you get sort of a nice big cushiony thing somewhere with all the controls on it. <laughs> if you need to have your, your butt raised up, you press a one button, it goes up, 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 up. <laughs> if you just want to lift it up, and it lifts up. <laughs> if you're too hot, you put a cooler in, so it cools everything down. Have you ever sat on those, I've sat on some of those chairs in luxury cars where actually the seat is warmed. They do that on a vehicle. Why can't you do that on a meditation cushion if you're meditating in a cold place? You can warm it up, oh, that's just nice. <laughs> and if you have sloth and torpor, you can actually do another button and you get a latte or a flat wine. It's <laughs> 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 a much more effective way to overcome sloth and torpor. If you have restlessness, you can never sit still. Like a straight jacket type thing, which comes up. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever. There's something to make it a little bit more interesting, you know, for your latest high tech meditation cushions. <laughs> so, but anyhow, this is what we've got, and it's not that bad. We do have the chairs, and I know some people are too proud to sit on chairs. And I say that quite. Clearly, but it's okay to sit on a chair. I remember just going on those pilgrimages to India in Nalanda. There was a month place had carvings on the stupas there, and I would always try and take people this one carving, which you got to know. There was a Buddha sitting on a chair. I said, Look, it's all right for the Buddha, it's all right for you, okay? You're not better than the Buddha, are you, Prem? <laughs> <laughs> Disturb you, and then your mindfulness can start to grow. 
But once the body is comfortable, comfortable enough for the meditation, to let go of worrying about it, then, even like good food as well. I always remember when the Buddha became fully enlightened. He had a lovely meal that morning, a really good breakfast from Sujata. So that's one of the reasons why I encourage you, please, you know, don't eat too much, but eat enough so your body feels at ease in the morning. And uh, he sat, he did sit down, have you ever sat down on the root of a tree? It really hurts your bum <laughs> after a while. Because you know, the roots are not flat. Even the Buddha got some grass, which was had been cut by somebody to make a little saffron for himself. And sat under the the uh, the canopy of a beautiful Bodhi tree. And it was in a park in uh, Bodhgaya. And uh, not far from the river. It was an idyllic place to meditate. I mention that because that helps allow the mind to be peaceful enough to get some nice meditation. That becomes you know, the first prerequisite to get good meditation. Quiet and comfortable place. And then, to establish that mindfulness in front of you, you cannot really call yourself mindful when you're just dwelling in the past or the future, some fantasies. But it's always been the case in Buddhism that one of the first things to do is learn how to let go of the past and you know, not be concerned with the future, no matter what that future is. There was one of the stories, I remember this was from um, Nasruddin, Nasruddin's story of, from the Sufi tradition of Islam. And anyway, this Nasruddin, he was, he was always saying wrong things, putting his foot in his mouth. And so eventually somebody, they were very jealous of him because he was very popular. And so they um, accused him of heresy. And so he had to be tried before the Shah. And of course, you know, what he actually said, he admitted, you know, he was like, it was true. So he was uh, tried by the Shah and said, so you're guilty. And because it's heresy, that there's only one punishment possible for you. You have to be executed. And how Nasruddin got out of this was really wonderful. He said, well, look, it's such a shame that you, know, you are going to execute me. And I just learned how to... I just learned how to teach donkeys how to fly. <laughs> and the Shah said, well, you can teach donkeys how to fly? Well, yeah, of course. It'll take me about a year, said Nasruddin. And so the Shah said, okay, I can't stop your sentence, but I can at least delay it for one year. So I can, you can prove that you know how to make donkeys fly. And then after a year, then I have to execute you. Okay, said Nasruddin. And then his friends asked him afterwards, can you really teach donkeys how to fly? Of course not, don't be stupid. <laughs> Why do you say that for? I've got an extra year. <laughs> and who knows, in that year, I might die of a heart attack anyway, or the Shah might die. 
Either way, you know, I've got a bit more hope that something good might happen. We kind of like it that way. He was actually making use of the uncertainty of the future for actually to get out of a death sentence. But anyhow, that in order to be freed of the past and the future, because there's so many other things, so many things you can worry about about the future. One of the reasons if we ever look at the news, I don't know why, but whenever I look at the news, it's always the bad stuff which might happen. Ukraine war, disaster, things going wrong in this world, corruption. Uh, what else have we got in this world? Economic disaster, floods, anything else? I'm sure you can think of some more things to add. But why is it that when people think of the future, they always focus on the bad things which will happen in the future? We don't know. Even when I first came to here to Australia, that, that was um, about 38 years ago, the monk in charge here at the time was hoping that Ajahn Chakra. And he was certain that with Ronald Reagan in the White House and Margaret Thatcher in number 10 Downing Street. There was bound to be a nuclear war. So every morning, I couldn't have a cup of tea or, uh, or have toast or anything, but every morning we had miso, miso soup. Why? Not because it's good for your health, because it's supposed to be good for preventing sickness during radiation. Uh, <laughs> 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 we had that about 60 months or months every morning. We fed up with it after a while. And of course, was there a nuclear war? Uh, if there was, I missed it. <laughs> but anyway, it just kind of concerns me just how many times people think of the future and always think about what might go wrong in the future. It's one of the reasons why that anxiety is a great hindrance to meditation. There's no end of things you can be anxious about. That's why some people have this hypochondria. Every time there's a pimple on me, that must be, uh, what's the latest? A monkey box. I've got to be very careful of monkey box because I'm a monkey. <laughs> 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 I don't have none box. There was this hypochondriac went to see his GP. And then every time there was a new disease, this guy was sure he had it. And every time the GP would do the test, no, you haven't got it. You're free of all of this. In fact, one day the GP said, look, I've really got to teach this guy a lesson. And shouted at him, said, look, there's nothing wrong with you. You're a perfectly healthy man. So you don't need to come and see me. And he treated him so severely and the patient was, was shocked and stunned. So he walked out of the surgery, but he was so shocked that he walked right across the road, got hit by a truck, and killed. 
course, the, the jeep heard the sound of the accident, ran outside, and when he saw that the jeep <coughs> was a bit too severe on this, this hypochondriac, and it killed him. And that was such a shock to the doctor, the doctor died of a heart attack. <laughs> so because they, because the two of them died you know, almost simultaneously, they were buried in a cemetery in plots next to each other. <laughs> and the first night, the doctor had someone knocking on his car door. <laughs> we opened up so future. It was this hypochondriac patient. And the hypochondriac said, Doctor, doctor. Have you got anything for works? <laughs> but how can you be free of worry about the future and about carrying the past so you can be free enough to be mindful? One of the nice ways of doing that is to add kindness to your perceptions of the past and the perceptions of the future. When you're kind, you can always look at somebody and see the wonderful parts. You realize just that prison officer who's so mean, he still had a nice side. You can wear him down and get to his, his nice side, but you can say thank you to a prisoner who's really trying to look after him. You can always find some goodness in anybody. One of the most violent prisoners dangerous prisoners I ever saw was that one Cray, the Cray brothers in East London. They were really violent, he was a mad one. And sometimes that when you see such people you're a bit afraid, but he was so kind. And he told me that if I ever get a few quid, I'll send some to your monastery. He never did, he never had a few quid, he died in, in prison. But nevertheless, that little bit of kindness was something which was quite moving. So, that when you see the good and beauty in things, you see the positive part of your own past. It's easy to see the positive side of the future. Which means when you're kind to it, it's not so heavy on you. It's not so unbearable. So that's why even what those women did who were traumatized, I talked about last yesterday, that when they develop a sense of kindness to what happened, and they could like hug the little girl who was so badly beaten, then that could relieve the heaviness, the weight of the past, and relieve in the same way the heaviness and the weight of the future. The kindness was one of the tricks, not trying to reject it, think these things didn't happen or can't happen, but you accept it with kindness. And it's amazing just how that changes uh, your perception of things. I don't know how many years ago it was, but the only danger we really have here uh, in this part of Australia, in Bodhinyana Monastery in particular, is bushfires. And many years ago, uh, it was the hottest day ever recorded in the history of Western Australia. 
It was surpassed later on, but it still ranks as the second hottest day, 46.7 degrees in the afternoon. That's pretty hot. And worse than that, at about one or two o'clock in the afternoon, one of the Anigo Empress was running to my hut and said, there's a bushfire. You can see a big pour of smoke coming up from the south of this monastery. We called the bushfire brigade, we got everybody ready, hoping that the bushfire wouldn't hit. But it came into the monastery about five o'clock in the afternoon. A crown fire. Have you ever seen those type of uh, fires. The trees explode. It's like a bomb going off. It's, it is awesome in the true sense of the word to see. And the uh, fire officer told us all to evacuate. You know what happened is one of the, the guests, I don't know why people do this, he decided to change his trousers before evacuating. <laughs> So he came running out, his trousers down. They <laughs> wait for me, wait for me. Why do people do this? I just can't imagine. But anyway, we all escaped, okay? But when you looked up to, that, to our monastery, we saw what was going on there. Things were really exploding. It's like a war zone. Boom! Bang! Because what happens, see, the eucalypt trees, they, because of the hot temperatures, they just, uh, oil evaporates, mixed with oxygen, becomes an explosive mix. When I saw that, straight away, we thought, okay, the monastery's gone. All those buildings, and I did most of the building work more than anybody else. I thought, that's it, finished, gone. And I can't see how anything could, could uh, uh, exist amidst all those explosions. But of course, in the morning, the head fire officer you know, took me out to inspect. Everything was still here. And that was an amazing thing because you just need to get to the Kingsbury Drive, the main road. There was no leaves on any of the trees, no greenery left at all. But you could actually see right through the whole of the monastery. There's furthest of huts. There's nothing to sort of shade them. All the huts were still, uh, still there. All the steel roofs, you can see them just uh, reflecting the early morning sunlight. Amazing. But I remember at the time thinking, until in the months when we evacuated, well, okay, it's worth it. I'm not going to uh, feel bad that it was all destroyed in just a couple of hours of really heavy fire. We can always start again, do it again. I honestly thought that. I wasn't so disappointed at all. I disappointed, yeah, but never came to allow that to stop you doing whatever you can do as a Buddhist monk to serve the community. And so that was teaching me how to deal with anxiety. I really thought everything was gone. And then when you come back, nothing was gone. You know, sometimes if you have a good attitude and you're a good person doing good things, so often in this world, I don't know how it works, but you know, you come out much better. You don't lose. Anxiety, sometimes I've noticed what you really are afraid of, concerned about, that's actually what comes true. 
almost like you wish it to be. But it comes there to teach you something. But anyway, the anxiety and about the future. Instead of anxiety, I would say, have hope instead. That's one of the reasons why there was a big billboard in the United States many years ago, don't worry, be happy. And I said, that's not really a good billboard. It'd be much better to put there, don't worry, be hopey. <laughs> in other words, worry is looking in the future, seeing all the bad things which might happen. Hopiness is looking in the future and thinking all the wonderful things which might happen. Looking at the same uncertain future, we're looking in a way which is not going to cause you extra stress. And because you are hoping, seeing the good in the future, it's more likely that that goodness will happen. Even in, even in little things like people's relationships. I don't know why people ask me, I'm a monk. But I know that people ask me for marriage counseling. I've never been married. Well, I was capable of that. But it still comes back to me if I say, oh, actually, can you please give me some advice on this? So look, yes, if you're really concerned, overly concerned about a relationship, then you don't trust the other partner. And that just lack of trust often destroys the relationship. But sometimes you can see what you fear, you're always following your partner, checking up on him or her, of course that's going to destroy the relationship. So this worrying about the future is a huge problem. And about the past. So always whatever happened in the past, you learn from it. One of the reasons why if you do any mistakes of the past, please tell someone. example is, because I think General uh, uh, Chandler reminded me of this just a few moments ago, what I call the 70% rule. 70% rule means that when you make a mistake, oh no, 70% I'm sorry, started off when I was a school teacher, I had to set my first exam in mathematics. Is there any math teachers here? Anyone good at math? Okay, if you heard me say this before, be quiet. See how good you are at maths. 26 sheep in the field. 10 die. How many survive? 16. No, it's wrong. 26 sheep in the field. 10 die. How many survive? The answer is 10. I'll say slowly. Twenty sick sheep. Be mindful. That's why they died, they were sick. <laughs> anyway, when I had to do a mass, set the mass test for the teacher at the end of the year in the high school in the UK, I never set the test before. I said, How do you do this? So they said, don't set it too hard. If it's too hard and people just get about 2 out of 10 or 3 out of 10 average, they will come away thinking they can't do maths. 
Sell it to us and you'll get some 100%, 95%. Again, they'll think they can't do maths. So sell it so the average score is 70%. Because 70% is a nice, nice score. But also, the most important part of that is not the 70% they've got right, but the 30% they get wrong. Because that's the feedback to me, their teacher. So that the next term I can focus on those parts which I thought they learnt, which they haven't learnt. The mistakes, the feedback to me, so I can teach them what they hadn't understood yet. That became 70% like in life, like in meditation, like in anything. If you always score 100%, you learn nothing. But if you make mistakes, or you make mistakes, admit them, let somebody know, and then you grow from them, you learn from them. That's why mistakes are not something which, is, which are to be hidden. Mistakes are to be let other people know about them. Sometimes those mistakes can be really, really funny. That's why I'm trying to think of some of my latest mistakes. I just remember the old ones very easily. Like for once when I was, uh, went over to, okay, once when I went over to um, Penang, when they sent me off at the airport, and it was really delicious. Um, it's like coffee, milk, lots of sugar. <laughs> and it's delicious, but then they had a straw in it, and I was trying to suck the liquid through the straw. The straw was blocked. And I was really trying hard to suck the liquid in, and nothing would come through. And so, uh, all my friends, those people who know the Penangis, Xiao Po, and and uh, Agnes. Anyway, they had their hands over their mouth. And I still realised they were trying their hardest not to giggle and laugh. I'd do something stupid. I couldn't figure out what. I kept trying to suck. Then I took the spoon out, took the uh, straw out. It wasn't a straw, <laughs> it was a spoon. <laughs> really thin plastic spoon. They never had those when I used to drink coffee before. Or, Spoons were like metal, you know, they were quite fat. And so anyway, so I learned from that. And this is a nice thing. You, I'll never do that again. I know the difference now between a modern spoon, which can be all sorts of strange shapes, and uh, a straw. But anyway, if you make a mistake, please admit it. And then you learn from it. So anyway, when you have fun, when you look upon the past, with some happiness, with some care, with some love, with some loving kindness. It's not such a burden anymore. And you know, you all know the story, I'll tell it more in depth later on, I'm sure. The angry eating monster. When you give kindness to the angry eating monster, the angry eating monster gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Less and less happy. Which means that what you think was unenjoyable even becomes a good friend. Many of those prisoners I used to teach in jail, and some of them at the time, they were told, the, in the prison officers told me they were notorious. 
they've been in there since very violent crimes, and they're going to be in there for long enough that basically whatever they did, they wouldn't add to their sentence. They could do whatever they wanted to. And I remember just going in there and giving this little biro pen by the prison officers in one of the top security jails here. And they told me that this is not a real biro pen. It can write, but it's a security device. If you get attacked, men, women, anybody could get raped in those jails. And those prisons were really big. They worked out in the gym. I didn't work out in the gym. I worked out in my cave. <laughs> one of my bathrooms. I do 10 push-ups every morning. I do. <laughs> so anyway, they said don't let the prisoners know the security devices, top secret. But in the ceilings were what looked like smoke alarms. They're not smoke alarms, they're security devices. If you get attacked, point the pen at that device, go off and know exactly where you are and come and save you. Because there have been many people, many visitors like me have been attacked inside the jails. Of course, well, as soon as I went into my class, they said, oh, you've got one of those security devices too, have you? <laughs> they all know what was going on. And then this big guy, you know, he became a great friend afterwards. And he told me, he said, do you really think, Grant, that you can even push the top of that button before we rate you? And I said, no. You get me first. He said, yes, we would. But you don't have to worry about those security devices. But enough friends inside this jail that we will protect you. And I, real, I realized he was being sincere. And uh, because you've been kind to them, they'd always protect you. You didn't need a security device. And when, you, when you're kind to people, you know, you're kind to animals, you're kind to snakes, you're kind to even other dangerous animals, like human beings. <laughs> They'll always look after you, don't have anything to fear. That's what I mean by when you're kind to the past. You can't harm you. When you're kind to the future, it doesn't harm you. It makes it easy to let the past and future go. When it's a danger, a real danger, of course it's hard to let it go. But you can't be mindful in this present moment. So that becomes one of the great things to be able to do. Let go of the past and the future. Be here in this moment. But how can we stay in this moment? That's called letting go so far. How can you let this present moment actually be here? When you're enjoying it, when you're kind to it, when you smile at it and it smiles back. There you go, you smile back. Whenever I smile at anybody, usually they smile back. Thank you. Because this is the way that we react to life. And so learning how to smile at the present moment. Here it is. See the beauty in it. See the goodness in it. See the delight in it. And it's something which is you know, hard to bear. Nevertheless, you always know you're going to learn something great from this. The most difficult teachers I ever had when I was a student were the ones I scared of them, but I learned the most from them. And this is one of the reasons why you can always see something good in everything you have to do. And then, 
the reasons I said why we have restlessness is because you know, we're trying to control something. You know, even just when you do start um, watching your breath in the meditation. First time I went to Malaysia, I couldn't believe it that people were complaining about a problem I'd never heard of before, which was called Samadhi headache. And I, I, I couldn't understand that because I would do meditation to overcome headaches, not to get them. But what was happening, people were trying to control their attention on the tip of their nose. And when you do that, take the glasses off, many have seen this before. I'm now going to watch the tip of my nose with my eyes open. What happens is, your eyes also focus on the tip of your nose, and you go cross-eyed. And if you, you don't notice this when you're watching the tip of your nose, but many people watch the tip of their nose, and underneath their eyelids, their eyes go cross-eyed. Anyone will get a headache along here after a while. Forcing it, not allowing things to be natural, to be at ease, means that you get tightness and headaches even in your meditation. You can't sustain that. So instead, you know that if you're in this present moment, something beautiful, something which is delightful, you don't have to uh, force your attention on it. You don't have to concentrate. I haven't mentioned this yet, but that's one of those worst translations of Buddhist terms made into English, concentrate. It does not mean that. If you want to check me out on that, you can just ask any Chinese people who read the books on meditation in Chinese. It never means concentrate at all. It means stillness. And when you know that this meditation is about stillness, not concentration, stillness does relax you. And the way to be still is you know, in this present moment. Just relax in this moment. And uh, Time stillness is silence. You don't need to give things names or words. Now this is a bit some cheeky to really pass in the tradition. But you know that sometimes that I tell the story of this woman who went to the temple one evening. She was a very wealthy woman with a really nice big house on her own. And so she told she had a guard on the house, like a person who uh, looked after the entranceway. She said, she told him, look, I'm going to the temple this evening. There's lots and lots of burgers in this area. I've been warned that there's many houses that have been robbed. So please be careful while I'm out. And he said, easy man, I do mindfulness training. So I will be able to watch your house, no trouble at all. I'll be very alert. Great. So off she went, when she came home, she found her house had been robbed and ransacked. And she asked the, the guard, I thought you didn't look after my house for me. He said, yeah, I did. 
Hakai's being ransacked. What happened? Well, I saw the burglar going in. I noted. Burglar going in. Burglar going in. Burglar going in. I saw all your jewelry going out. Jewelry going out. I saw them driving the truck in. Truck going in. Truck going in. I saw safe being pulled out of the wall. Safe being pulled out. Safe being pulled out. I was fine for a long time then. Is that enough? No, of course not. So there's much more to the mindfulness than just noting. In fact, it's noting this is a lot of what's really going on. Which is lovely if you can, when you're meditating, be silent. You see much more. And what you see is more delightful, it's more enjoyable. One of the reasons why the more you speak inside, the less you see. Notice the duller your experience becomes. You can see things in silence. As you go outside and just look at the forest, it's absolutely, I don't tire of this forest out. It's beautiful, it's gorgeous. The dawn this morning, I came down here just at five o'clock, it was spectacular. I lived here for years. I never tire of it. But if I started like photographing it, or trying to take notes about it, describe it, or write a poem about it or something, I would miss it. The best beauty is experienced in silence. So that's one of the reasons why when we have enough mindfulness, you'll notice that you're in this moment, not forcing yourself here, but happily being here. And you become silent. You don't need to describe this moment to yourself. In fact, you notice that all descriptions miss out too much. In the silence, you can see the whole picture. And it's also in silence, it's much more delightful. It's one of the reasons why that I haven't been to my cave yet, but apparently on Saturday, next Saturday, is that right, Julia? Yes, Saturday. Yeah, next Saturday. You're going to have a tour to the cave, apparently. And the reason I like it is totally silence in there. Any noise outside, I just cannot hear. If the monks are banging on me, on the door on the outside, hey, there's a fire, there's a snake, or the monks have run off with the nuns. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll hear it. But it's, and it's silent and it's just, it's delightful in there. There's nothing to do in there except just to be in the moment. So little by little, I just start to enjoy the mindfulness, the silence. In this moment, natural, nothing to do. It becomes a very wonderful place to hang out. Okay, um, it's eight, nine o'clock now, so we do have some interviews now. So when we have the interviews, please keep it to ten minutes each. And please try to keep it to your meditation if you at all possibly can. And please, no marriage counselling. <laughs> I've never been married. <laughs> 
about any, any job advice, because I've just had the one job for the last 48 years. <laughs> but anyhow, I hope you uh, have a wonderful morning, and I'll see this, uh, those of you on the interviews for this afternoon and the weekend. Okay? So.